Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back. Let's go to the phones. And joining us from Tightline Outdoors is Dustin Ziegler. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning, Terry. How are you, sir? You know, I'm doing well. And when I opened the show about an hour ago, I mentioned what a beautiful day it is. It was tremendous weather yesterday, tremendous weather today. The nights are getting colder. The fishing and hunting have been changing for the better, actually. Now, we have a pretty severe cold front coming in. It's going to drop the water temperatures, and it's going to... uh, Maybe get a little rain. We'll see some fronts are going to come through. But unlike spring, that's not a bad thing this time of the year, is it? (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, I think you and I both know uh, fall conditions and fronts uh, tend to be a good thing when it comes to walleye fishing in particular. And uh, it's been a slow tease of a progression uh, into this fall slash winter period, in my opinion. And so... I think this uh, cold front and this cold system moving in next week is definitely going to be uh, kind of our peak for the fall bite. Now, three of the major waters in the metro area are Aurora, Cherry Creek, and Chatfield. You fish all three of those. Why don't you kind of take us through what's been going on there now, each one, and what you expect to happen as this weather moves in? Sure, yeah. Um, We've been seeing, uh, like I said, a slow progression of turnover, so trying to follow that exact turnover period was kind of difficult to do. We had a lot of fish scattered in all of the systems, and you'd get a a good bite one day and kind of a slower bite the next, and it just wasn't quite to that fall peak period bite that we like seeing when when you know you can go out and uh, do all of your normal fishing for them and and have a really good day on the water. as far as it all goes, I would say, you know, Aurora Reservoir kind of showed uh, signs of, of a true turnover uh, recently this week. Uh, fish were really deep, um, and so uh, not much shallow at all. Um, and then Chatfield, kind of the same thing. Uh, fish were kind of scattered, not schooled up, uh, but just in the last couple of days, um, maybe this, this week, uh, we started to see way more fish. Uh, deeper and um, and schooled up, not as scattered around the bait fish, of course, um, and and bites been picking up tremendously. So um, Cherry Creek's been on and off and on and off. There's not a true turnover uh, per se at Cherry Creek. Everything kind of is relative to temperatures um, all around it. But um, I would say in the last week we're seeing uh, the bite pick up in all of these bodies of water uh, tremendously. So. Now, Chatfield and Cherry Creek are a little different than Aurora, that they both have really strong shad bases. Are you, as these temperatures drop, it tends to stress those shad, and that's what really gathers these predator fish. So you're starting to see these fish and the shad gathered. Is that what you're seeing? And are good electronics really a key to finding them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you can watch everything that you're seeing. I mean, I'm, I have live scope uh, on my boat along with your, your traditional sonar. So I get uh, kind of a better picture of what's going on, how the fish are acting, their moods, how the bait fish are acting. Um, and so I've seen some really interesting things uh, using panoptics with that. Um, a lot of these fish are now on hard break lines 
right next to soft bottom. So uh, your deep transition lines are holding all of these fish. Um, a lot of the fish are, the walleye in particular, are there on the base of the brake line or right on the brake line. And then your bait fish are kind of directional on those brake lines. So with live scope, I can actually tell which direction the bait fish are swimming along the brake line, which can help me, uh, you know, with my presentations and how I'm going to fish that particular area. But, um, yeah, as long as you can drive around, you can see the, the bait fish. Um, a lot of the shallow structure isn't quite going good yet. We, we like to see the fish move a little bit shallow and kind of, you know, scatter with that transition in water temperature but uh we are starting to see these fish school up underneath bait um and again on live scope i'm able to watch them just come in and blow up on shad uh bait balls you know and watch them all move around so it's really cool uh come a couple of the techniques though that are they're not uh any secret um you know the kind of the biggest staples this time of year of course are uh jigging wraps uh, shiver minnows, blade baits, and such. Another one that a lot of anglers kind of overlook, though, is casting spoons, um, uh, like your binks spoons, slabbing-style spoons. Those can be actually very productive, and I think they're underutilized this time of year. Um, but as long as you're following the bait fish around you're, that have fish, active fish under them in those key locations, brake lines, brake lines, brake lines, you got to find them and use them. Um, you're going to have an excellent day on the water for the next, uh, all the way up until ice up or until boating closes for sure. Now, it's kind of amazing when I listen to you talk about how an overlooked presentation is spoons. If you went back 20 years, nobody was at least not talking about using jigging wraps. There were a few people using blade baits, but spoons were the lure of choice. And as the jigging wraps have taken off and the glide baits like that have taken off and been so effective. We've seen a reduction in spoons. And part of that is fish do get conditioned to certain presentations. I, I think you're right that people underutilize jigging spoons. Uh, I wrote the chapters for the in fishermen on the uh, walleye critical concept books on using those spoons. And we did the photography and the, the actual research right on Pueblo Reservoir. This goes back into the late 90s to Tom Bruno and I. And spoons are so effective, and I think they will be effective again. And sometimes they're a little easier for people to learn to present than a, a jigging wrap, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah. I think your hookup percentage can be better. Um, and, yeah, it's not as finessey, if you will, as a, as a jigging wrap. And kind of the biggest thing, too, is that I think it. it the reason why it's so good just can be its fall rate, the way it falls. Um, you look at it in a giant slab of lead, and it, it seems like, well, this is just like throwing an anchor out there. But really, when it falls, it's, it has that flutter to it. It's got that vibration in the water. Um, and a lot of times, these walleye, that that fall rate is what they are looking for. Um, and and I noticed this on Chatfield uh and, and Aurora in particular, um, your size profile um, of your lure and then the weight of it seem to be the biggest deal over uh, color. Everybody's so worried about color of the lure. It's, oh, it's got to be a perch pattern. It's got to be, you know, blue chrome or this and that. And really, it, the, your color doesn't matter. It's all in that action, the fall rate and the, the profile of that lure that's going to do it. I've had, um, you know, size nine jigging wraps. All of a sudden, they wouldn't touch sevens or fives or any other sizes, but you threw a nine on. It didn't matter what color. We were catching them all day on, 
on a size nine. And then the next day you switch up to a bink spoon that's, you know, three quarter of an ounce to an ounce. And that's all they wanted. They didn't want the size nine. They didn't want a seven. They'd, so you kind of have to play around with your techniques. But um, I, I'd say matching your profile and the fall rate um, it is so crucial this time of year. I think, you know, and I think that's because people don't realize, they think cold water, they think of finesse fishing. And if this really was a finesse bite, you'd put just a jig and a soft plastic or a jig and a minnow down there. And those usually aren't very effective right now. They can be, but they're usually not. And I think it's the fact that we're getting the fish, uh, that, that spoon, when it's fluttering down, has so much of the vibration look of a dying shad or that jigging wrap that you move and you up and down fall has a, just that stressed bait fish look, you're really getting a reaction bite, not a feeding bite, aren't you? Yep, exactly. It's all reaction fishing. You know, you got to think of our bodies of water. They're smaller and they are just full of bait fish. And so when you have bodies of water that have this much bait fish in the system, finesse fishing just doesn't get the job done. You're, these fish have a, a pick at billions of shad above their head and and when you're just blending in as another another fish, it, it just doesn't work like that with live bait. So our systems are very, um, you know, very particular when it comes to reaction fishing. And that's why it's so important to learn how to work a blade, how to work a jigging wrap, how to work these spoons um, to be successful this time of year. I've talked to several guys at the boat ramp who um, pull out bottom bouncers and, and they have their shiners with them and, um, you know, jigs and, and shiners or fat heads and and yes, you're going to catch some fish doing it, but I guarantee you, if you learn the cadence and, and learn how to work these reaction baits that we're talking about, your fall fishing will improve um, dramatically. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's just a dust, and it's just a tremendous way to fish. And when you do, and the electronics, as you mentioned earlier, are such a key. When you find these fish, you really have to find the fish, but when you do find them, that reaction bite just puts fish in the boat so quickly. And this is the time of the year again. You know, we talk about big fish during the spring. In the summer, the big fish habits are so different. And they, they it's, it's a lot of times difficult for the average angler to locate big fish. Those big fish are going to be eating the same bait as those medium-sized fish. And you're going to find there's going to be crappies eating them. And there's going to be smallmouth bass eating them. Uh, whatever's in the lake, you might even, you'll even catch trout eating uh, those shad balls. Yep, exactly. Yeah, you get concentrations of fish um, that are all feeding on the same buffet. And um, so, yeah, you're exactly right. You're going to have uh, a multi-species days. You're going to have big fish mixed in with smaller fish. And, and that's, and, and you know, when I say big fish, all these fish in the system now, they've been feeding all summer. They're now to fall where they got to pack on the feed bag, get themselves fattened up for this winter. Um, and so they, this is all they care about. They're staring at food all day, 24 seven, and then just picking that right feeding window and being there at the, you really, like you said, you got to have that right, um, spot. So when you're finding bait fish and fish together, you know, stop and fish it. You, you take 10, 15 minutes, honestly, you know, it's five casts. And if you're not hooked up, move around a little bit, find, get onto another, uh, a group of fish and just keep moving. Once you hit that hot spot though, where, where those fish are loaded up and, and eating, um, yeah, it's lights out fishing. It's been an excellent bite thus far. And I'm excited for the next couple of weeks for sure. Um, the bite should only get better and better all the way up until ice up. 
And, you know, we're talking about the metro lakes, you know, the ones Cherry Creek, Chatfield, Aurora. But these techniques and these phenomena of what's happening are going to go from Pueblo to Glendo and out to McConaughey, too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's already happening at those bodies of water. You know, the further north you go, typically speaking, uh, turnovers happen quicker. You know, you have colder temperatures there than you typically have here. And so you usually can follow that phenomenon all the way down um, north, down the down the south. So um, I think we're, yeah, we're looking at an excellent opportunity. I know there's a lot of people in the fields, um, a lot of people in the hunting scene right now. So if they can uh, take a day or two off of that and, and get on the water, I highly recommend it. Now is the time. Well, and it's a great time, what you mentioned, because a lot of avid anglers are hunting. And a lot of people have settled in to watch the football games or they put their gear away. So not only is it a phenomenal bite, but it's not, the water's not nearly as crowded. A lot of times you'll have an area all to yourself, even on a metro lake. Yeah. Yeah. I I was on Chatfield. I've been on Chatfield Aurora and Cherry Creek this last week and, um, spent five days. So just about every day out, out on the water. And I got to say, there's, a handful of boats there's very minimal pressure on these waters right now which was it was very nice i enjoyed it a lot and the other thing um terry i think we talked about it the other day that i want to mention is getting out and and uh, kind of prospecting for winter so um as we get closer and closer to boat ramps closing um you need to get your boat on the water regardless just to kind of go scope out the water see where these fish are so when uh, ice does hit these lakes, you're going to have a good starting point. You're going to have some marks on your GPS to go follow and go back to and know kind of where to start your ice fishing trips um, come come that time. I think you're so right. It's so critical. If you can get time on the water to mark fish movements, they don't change that much when the ice comes on. And if nothing else, mark some really good a spot on a spot, a rock that's on a break line, some cover, uh, some brush that's down there. It's amazing what it'll do. Dustin, we are out of time. If people want more information, how do they get a hold of you guys? Yeah, so uh, Tightline Outdoors, guys, uh, Facebook page. You can go on there, uh, Tightline Outdoors, tightlineoutdoors.com. Uh, we are redoing our website, so uh, bear with us there. We're getting everything filled in and um, so right now, I would say uh, just go to our Facebook page, Tightline Outdoors, and uh, reach out to us. Great information and a great fishing opportunity right in our backyard here, Dustin. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Terry. Have a great day. You bet, Dustin Ziegler. I mean, this, folks, this is right. It's For a lot of you, this is 15 minutes from your house, one of these three lakes. If you still got your boat out, Take advantage of this. You'll find some of the best fishing of the season. I know the weather can get a little cool. And by the way, if you want to see how we do this, go to my YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. And we did a whole, we did one on Pueblo and one on Lake McConaughey using spoons. It'll be a great teaching tool for you on how to approach this kind of fishing. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we are going to... Um, Talk dog training right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. Before we go to the phones, follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. You'll know what's coming up on these shows. We give live reports from in the field. I did some fishing this week that was posted. We take some of our better podcasts. We put those up on our Facebook page, and so you can have immediate links to them. And we also have a lot of contests. 
We're going to do some trivia. And the answer to the trivia question usually shows up on the Facebook page the week before we do the contest. And we have some great prizes. And we had another contest, and that was a dog training contest. And that went uh, really well. And not only did we get some great questions answered, but somebody won a great prize there, too. So follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Let's go to the phones. And joining us from Hideaway Kennels is Ben Garcia. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Terry. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing really well. And even though it officially doesn't start till next week or the next couple of weeks, um, T-Mobile has stepped up and become a partner to the show specifically they want to make sure that your every other dog training segment stays on the air. So kudos to them for taking such an interest that guarantees we'll have Ben to beat up for the next couple months here anyway. <laughs> sounds great to me. <laughs> so sounds yeah. great to me. And so, yeah. Hey, you know, I, when I, I let in, we were, we were talking about the contest we did. I want to kind of get back to that a little bit because um, it was a lot of the questions that really went obedience versus field training. And I want to get your feelings on that. But before we do, Greg Hill, did you get the question I sent you from Greg? I did. It was a great question. And it's one we get from a lot of other folks throughout the weeks also. So it's a great question. And so, so why don't we go ahead and address that? Go ahead. And, uh, do you want me to read it or do you have it in front of you? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and read it and then I can answer it. And I think that would go really well. All right. Well, Greg, he came in after the contest was over, but asked if we'd answer this question. He says, with COVID and working from home, my dog has developed a bit of an attachment. When I leave without her, she is having a bit of separation anxiety. How do I get her back to a point where I can go to dinner without the dog destroying something, chewing the fence, digging up the yard? So that is a great question. How do you approach that? Yeah, and we saw that a lot this last year with, with people getting back to work and, and going out, um, which is great. It's great for all of us. Um, there's things you can do with your dog. Like one, I always, and you know I'm a big I really believe in the crates. Um, you know, if they're in a crate and you're gone, they can't get in anything. All they can get into which is in that crate. So, I mean, we all know dogs get into stuff that's poisonous. They get into stuff they shouldn't chew. Then you have to get their stomachs operated on and not good stuff. So um, I like to, if I have a young dog that has some separation anxiety, even through COVID times or just normal times, you got to give them something to do in the crate. So, like, my suggestion to Craig would be, or excuse me, to Greg would be, you know, like, get a Kong, you know, those Kongs are great. Cause you can do the peanut butter in them. You can do different, you can do treats in there. But like what I would do is get a Kong, put some peanut butter in there, freeze it, and then put the dog in the crate and, and practice. I mean, go for a walk around the block for five minutes, get another crate and then come back and let her out. And then you may do that for three or four days, then do 10 minutes. But the idea on the Kong with the peanut butter is it gives her a job to focus on and something she's attentive to other than Greg leaving. You know, so you want to start off small, just like any other training or anything else you're doing, and then build up. So the first week, first three days, you may do that for five minutes, you know, a five-minute walk around the block or just go outside and, you know, watch a show or read a book and then come back in and get her out. And then eventually build yourself up to 30, 40 minutes that you can be gone, and then you'll start getting her in the routine of, hey, if I get in the crate, I get a Kong, I can pay attention to that instead of dad leaving. But I don't believe in, one, leaving a dog unattended, at a young age without a crate. And, and the second one, and it just happened down here in the Springs a couple weeks ago, the lady had her dog in the front seat with her. They got in an accident. The dog, the car door busted open and the dog took off and they had a, it took quite a while and some effort to find the dog. So crate in the car, crate in the house. If you're leaving, if you're driving, we all like to have our buddy next to us, but just as a safety precaution to have your animal in a crate, it's the best thing to do to avoid the digging, get digging out. 
you know, chewing a fence and getting to the neighbor's yard or getting hit by a car. I mean, that's, we got to control that as dog owners and that's our responsibility to our dogs. Oh, it really is. You know, owning a dog is a huge responsibility. People think about all the fun, but they don't understand sometimes the, the responsibility and how it can tie you down sometimes too. Now, a lot of the questions yep. last week, Ben, were, were back and forth between obedience and field training. A lot of people had a field dog that they couldn't get to behave at home or a, an obedient dog that they're trying to train for the field. Um, if, I have a two-part question for you. First of all, right. you know, if you want that good buddy dog that jumps up on your lap or comes over and puts his head on your on your knee or something, are you kidding yourself that that it won't conflict with field training? And then the second part is, I mean, should you get one that's just a companion first, or should it be just a field dog? And then, when should you be doing obedience versus field training? Right. So I think, you know, my belief is the dogs are family members, regardless if it's, you know, a, a dog you bought for hunting, a dog you bought for companionship, whatever. I mean, they're a family member in your house. Let's face it, they're a pack animal. We invite them into our pack. We live with them. They become part of our life and our routine. And, and that's the blessing we have when we breed dogs is, is we're, we're getting somebody a puppy that they didn't get to integrate into their family and, and form a pack with that dog. So if they come up and they're letting you pet them and they're letting them be around you, of course they can be a hunting dog. You know, I mean, our, our hunting season is so small compared to the rest of the year we live with them. So I'm a big believer in personal time with them, time petting them time having your hands on them all that stuff is good you know i mean you don't want to get in the habits of like on a bird dog like tug of war or tennis balls or those things that can contradict your hunting but if you're focused on a hunting dog know where your goal is you should be fine we had a talk i had a talk with a client of mine this week where we talked about you know there's a preseason to everything i mean like sports teams go through a preseason so, like, for bird dogs, like, I like to say, like, your preseason typically starts in July. And that's where you start getting them in shape. You know, you start running them, things being you talked about this summer. You know, you're getting their nails trimmed down. You're getting their coats groomed. You're taking them to the groomer. That happens. And then you start backing away from maybe some of the habits you're doing. So, maybe not so much lounge time in July, August as exercise time. But then when the season ends in January, February, for you, depending on what you're hunting, give your dog some pet time. Let them relax. Let them sleep. You know I mean? I know. At Rocky Mountain Roosters, when we closed down in, in April, those dogs sleep for like a month. I mean, it's we give them bones. We're giving them, you know, it's vet time, it's vet checks, but they sleep. And so, I mean, it's a siesta for about a good month where their just bodies are recovering from six months of hunting hard for us. So um, I really think that preseason, postseason is something to evaluate as you as a dog, as a companion and a hunting dog also. And then what about obedience versus field training? Can you do them simultaneously? Does one have to be done first? Yeah. So I have this belief system that we get lost as human beings of, we don't pay attention to with dogs is what's genetic and, and what's something we're asking them. You know, for example, like a retrieve is gen genetic. A, a point is genetic. Um, marking a bird in the sky, watching ducks in the sky, that's genetic. Um, sitting and staying in a duck blind for five hours is not genetic. Those dogs were once pack animals that hunted in a pack to go find game, and now you're asking them to sit and stay. So that goes back to your sit and stay work when you're in the house. And that goes back to your sit and stay work when you're in the backyard having a barbecue or at a soccer game, all of that is relevant to what you're asking that dude, that dog to hunt. You know, I mean, if you're upland hunting and you're hiking, 
relative. I mean, don't let the dog be 300 yards away from you and not know where they are and getting lost. Keep them in a hunting pattern to where they can be. So they can work together. You just got to have your own goal of where you want to be. And that really is a discussion that somebody needs to have with their trainer or, or themselves of where they want to be with that dog. But absolutely, you need to lay down a foundation of obedience. There's this myth of with dogs that we don't look at genetics of we need to give them a wean within the first five weeks of their life we need to give them a bird in the first so-and-so time and and that's all the genetics that bird drive that prey drive that's everything your breeder should have put together for you to get you the dog you want the, the obedience and stuff you need to do on your own i mean the big example we run into with people and this is the gun the gun introduction on a dog is not a genetic issue. Being gun shy is not a genetic issue. It's a man-made product that we introduce to the dogs. So that needs to be done safely and properly so the dog understands what the gun is. They understand the gun means when a gun goes off, I've got a bird to retrieve. So you're tying in the genetics compared to the training you want out of your dog to get the result you want. Ben, we are running out of time, but I got to tell you, uh, one of your relatives just texted. I, I'm just kidding. Somebody named Steve yeah. just texted. Somebody named Steve yeah. just texted and said, Ben is the best. My family and our 10-year-old um, hideaway lab, Bentley, can attest. Great breeder, great trainer, and great guy. So uh, there's a great testimony well, from, from one of our listeners. And before we let you yeah. go, if people want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? Yeah, the best way is, is through our, our web page, which is hideawaykennels.com, or through our Facebook page, um, which is Hideaway Kennels, really easy, and um, happy to talk dogs with people, happy to get back to them um, when we're done training. I mean, our, the reality of our job is we're out in the field playing with dogs all day, which we're very blessed to do, but when we wrap that up in the afternoon, we can generally get a phone call back to somebody or email back to them. All right, my friend, we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You bet. Ben Garcia. You know, folks, just I've learned so much since he's been our dog training expert uh, every other week on the show. Uh, HideawayKennels.com or Hideaway Kennels on Facebook. If you have a dog question or need training, I, I couldn't recommend more to, to go to Ben. We're going to take a time out. We come back. JR is going to join us from Colorado Clays, and we're going to talk rifles right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go to the phones and joining us, our friend from Colorado Clays, J.R. Pierce. Good morning, J.R. Hey, good morning, Terry. It's a beautiful day. I bet it's just gorgeous out of your place today. Oh, it's a great day for some shooting, Terry. We've got a bunch of folks out here enjoying this fall weather. Uh, just a great time. You know, last last time you were on, we talked about choosing a shotgun and obviously Colorado Clays is a premier shotgun facility. You have trap skeet, wobble trap, you have sporting clays. So you guys have a lot of knowledge about shotguns, but you're not just a shotgun facility. You also have a great rifle and pistol range and picking a rifle can be a lot different than picking a shotgun, can't it? Absolutely, Terry. And, you know, there's just so much to be said on this topic. And like you said, being the, the premier public uh, shooting facility in Colorado, we do service uh, shotgun, rifle, and pistol shooters throughout the year. But, you know, uh, like you said, Terry, uh, particular rifles are generally more suited to a smaller range of applications than, say, shotguns or pistols. And what I mean by that is, as we talked about on your last show, uh, many individual shotguns and pistols can perform very well 
as home defense guns, as recreational weapons, uh, hunting, and competition with one well-made choice of a particular firearm. And many of the rifles over time have been designed with a particular niche or more of a narrower range of applications in mind. And this is why there are just so many different sizes, calibers, and platforms available to choose from. And of course, there are the age-old debates about which may be the best for a given job. So since we are not sponsored by or affiliated with any particular manufacturers or designs here at Colorado Clays, I think we should focus on the different types of rifles available and talk about that gun design's benefits to the average person trying to make a choice that is good for their individual needs and expectations. So, again, being the premier public shootings facility here at Colorado Clays, we see thousands of rifles of all different types every year, from your standard bolt-action gun, which is basically the... Um, the, the standard in the hunting, um, it has a bolt with a lever on it and all of the actions of uh, loading the chamber and uh, bringing rounds from the magazine into the chamber are controlled by the person using the gun. Uh, semi-automatics, which are basically those that use the energy developed by firing a round to load the next round in and uh, eject the round there, empty the magazine. Muzzle loaders, which are just, of course, what they say, all of the powder, projectiles and stuff are loaded into the muzzle of the gun and known as a primitive weapon. Uh, we do see some pump-action rifles and occasional break-action style. And even more and more, Terry, we're seeing some real nice air rifles, which are incredibly accurate. They're great target rifles for competition or recreational and can even be used in some cases for hunting small or big game. But, you know, Terry, having said all that, the first question one asks themselves should be, what is my primary use or uses for this firearm and what will be the determining factors in my choice? And what I mean by that is cost. Are you on a budget? Is money an issue? Availability. Some uh, guns, calibers, and platforms are less available than others. Um, and, of course, how available is the ammo? We, we talk about that all the time. In 2021, uh, ammo is a big issue. issue. Uh, accuracy. Uh, very important to some people, but only so necessary. Often accuracy comes at a cost. You have to make that decision as well. And, of course, how can the gun be upgraded or accessorized versus the other options? So, for example, a hunting gun, you know, does it meet the minimum calorie requirements for big game in your particular state, uh, et cetera, et cetera? So making a list and doing research beforehand rather than making an impulse buy almost always pays big dividends later. And, of course, Terry, never forget the value of talking to the professionals at Colorado Clays because we do this all day, every day, and we're always glad to help answer questions for our customers. No, you're absolutely right. Let's go through uh, some of these just a little bit. I know we can't get into incredible detail, but let's start with probably the most common hunting choice, and that's the bolt action. What are the pros and cons of the bolt action? Well, generally, Terry, and, you know, this is one of the big things for most people, that bolt gun, dollar for dollar, you can get the, the best accuracy for your money out of a bolt action gun. Um, so they're very, they're very accurate out of the box. Most of the time, most of these guns are actually more accurate than the person using them. 
but for your money, the bolt gun is the best. Now, depending on what you're doing with it, a uh, bolt gun is great for hunting, and a bolt gun is also great for target shooting. So you can do recreational and even some competition with the same gun. So it's got a fairly broad spectrum uh, that you can work with. Of course, the number of calibers available is mind-boggling in uh, the bolt guns. Uh, so a person can really decide what his primary and secondary uses are and adjust the caliber he chooses based on um, his intended uses. So the bolt gun, um, again, dollar for dollar, accuracy for accuracy, upgradability uh, is a really good choice for most people wanting to get into a rifle for either hunting, recreational, and possibly some competitive aspects. Now, how does, when you move to a semi, uh, semi-automatic rifle, what, what are the pros and cons? What do we lose? Is it dollars? Is it accuracy? What do we lose and gain there? Well, there is generally a slimmer number of calibers available in the semis versus the bolt guns. Um, there are a lot of, uh, of new ones using the AR platform and such that have a bunch of calibers available. One thing it's always been somewhat of an issue is that when you are using the energy from the firing of a round to um, actuate the gun, sometimes you can lose some consistency in the uh, projectile coming out and the accuracy can go down to some degree. Now, having said that, uh, the new guns, uh, new optics and uh, such available, you can get some incredible accuracy out to mid-range and then some. Um, the Initial cost on a semi-automatic can sometimes be more because of the total number of moving parts. They can be a little bit more finicky on ammo. And, of course, um, you know, there's just nothing more simple, basic, and easy to use when you don't maintain them properly or get, in properly or get into an environment uh, where it's really dirty. Sometimes the semis can suffer there. But overall, they're not a bad choice. You do have um, magazine options, which, of course, you need to follow your state's regulations as far as capacities. Uh, so the semis tend to be able to hold more rounds uh, in the magazines if needed or allowed. Um, but they're really a good choice. A lot of folks do keep them around with, um, you know, home defense or uh, self-security in mind. Um, but a lot of that is really about doing the research, deciding on the caliber, and, uh, again, if you're going to hunt with one, that is fine. Uh, just got to follow the state's regulations on that. But semis are definitely a good choice. Um, would probably be our second most popular gun on the range. Now, a semi-automatic versus a bolt, and I'm a huge fan of bolt action for hunting. I mean, that's I, – I, I even used to – Go back to the lever actions, the 3030s when I was a kid. That was the that was the traditional Minnesota deer rifle. But some people are a little bit uh, recoil shy. And do you get a little bit less recoil with the semi because of using the energy to act activate the, the the firearm? Absolutely, Terry. So caliber for caliber, round for round. Yes, you're going to. Um, take away some of the recoil because that energy is used to cycle the gun. 
Uh, now, that can be at the cost of accuracy at times. Um, so these are choices that need to be made individually. Uh, depending on what your use for the gun is, um, you can also adjust the caliber on a bolt gun by dropping it down, pushing out smaller projectiles, still keeping your accuracy and potentially doing the job you have at hand, whether it's hunting, target shooting, or competition, and adjust the recoil by changing calibers or um, loads that you run through the gun. So there's more than one way to adjust for recoil. Um, one way is, of course, with the semi, but you can also adjust your bolt rifle to suit your needs and find loads that it would be very comfortable to shoot. And uh, without going into muzzle brakes and other options, uh, some of the bigger bores, um, you can use brakes on the end of the barrel that actually divert the gases uh, in a direction that offsets the recoil. So lots of options. Again, uh, another thing that can come at a cost, but definitely a consideration on your list before you buy a gun. Now, we're only got a couple minutes left, but if I'm looking for a rifle, I really, you brought this up right in the beginning that I really have to know what I'm going to use it for, big game hunting, varmint hunting, plinking. Are there some common calibers that you recommend that seem to perform well that you kind of guide people to? Well, Terry, uh, there, there are. So, uh, obviously, the two twenty three. 5.56 caliber is a great one for, it's comfortable to shoot, it's very common, the ammo is available, works great for varmint hunting uh, and or pest control sometimes. Uh, good for competitive, it's a very accurate load, but it's not legal for doing big game. So oftentimes uh, we will step up, you know, a 257 is very common, 270 is very common. Uh, when you start getting into the bigger ones, then we have recoil considerations uh, that we need to offset for some people. So those mid-range calibers uh, in the, the more common uh, calibers are really a good choice for most people. But again, do your research, uh, talk to people you trust, and, of course, here at Colorado Quays, we can tell you a lot about what we see throughout the course of the year um, with those particular guns to help you make your decision. All right, my friend, if uh, people want more information or they just want to visit you at Colorado Quays, how do they do that? Well, Terry, definitely give us a call, 303-659-7117. Uh, go to our website, coloradoquays.com. Take the virtual tour. Check the place out. But whatever you do, make sure you get out here, um, check us out, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing everyone. All right. You have a great Halloween. Are you already dressed for it? Uh, Terry, I scare them without dressing up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. All right. Have a good one. You bet. J.R. Pierce from Colorado Clays. Great people. Tremendous facility. If you... Uh, or a shooting enthusiast, you don't, you don't need to be a member. Just drop by, kick the tires, check them out, walk around. They love people to come out there, check them out. We're going to take a time out. We come back, we'll wrap things up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. A couple things I want to touch on real quick here. And one is, uh, for those of you that still want to get out and do some local angling, they're going to start stocking the ponds and lakes up and down the front range with trout. They do every fall. They do both because it's a great time 
for the fish to survive through the winter. They provide recreation both in the fall and for ice fishing. And a lot of these bodies of water that get a little too warm during summer then can start the spring out with a lot of uh, good-sized fish in them. But it's a great thing to take advantage of right now. And they want you to catch these fish and take some home. So if you just want to go somewhere by the shore, a small pond or a lake, and fish for some trout, the opportunities are going to be tremendous. And you'll almost always catch some fish. The best way to guarantee your success is just look for the stocking report. Karen posts on our Facebook uh, page, uh, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, every other week it comes out, the fishing report. In there is a link to where they've stocked the trout. And you can go right. They want you to catch these. It's not a secret. So you'll see where they've stocked them, and you can go right out there after that and have some great fishing. Another thing that I really want to talk about, we're getting into the colder weather, is survival. There's so many misconceptions about, and that's year-round in Colorado, about survival, about what you need with you, about how you should dress, and all those types of things. I wrote a fairly extensive column for the Denver Post a few years ago on survival. I'm going to repost that on our Facebook page during this next week, uh, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, and I will... I will also try to get some people on and we'll talk about it a little bit because we want your, we want you to be not only comfortable outdoors, but we want you to be safe. So we're going to cover those topics more and more in the next few weeks. Now, is our good friend Dan Jacobs back from assignment? I am. And by the way, I want people to know, because um, you're so modest, but uh, if, you because know, people, if they go out there and they stock and they catch an easy fish, if they happen to see you out there, well, Terry's happy to take a picture with your fish, by the way, just so you know. He does it all the time. It just, it just never quits, does it? No, but anyway, it never, never ends. You're right. Hey, um, you were on assignment. I was. Uh, a fairly wonderful assignment in yes. Hawaii. Yes. I'm sure you were doing research for the radio was your only purpose to well, be I there. Was, I was looking for that vaunted Vic Fangio defense because we've never seen it. I'm like, it's got to be out there somewhere. Well, I'm, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But the first thing, you and I are both kind of foodies, and we like to play with fire. So mm -hmm. did you come back from Hawaii with any new grilling ideas? Uh, no, not really. I, I, see, I, I didn't like their local food. Other than they have the thing I respect about Hawaii more than any other place on the planet, they have a great appreciation for corned beef hash more than anybody, probably than any other place in the world. So I love that. I do love corned beef hash too with a with a runny egg over the top. Mm -hmm. It's pretty fantastic. Yes. All right, let's get back to what you just said. My first question I had right on my notes for you. We have the highest paid defense and this defensive quote unquote genius as a coach, yet we have one of the worst defenses in the league. They benched their big uh their marquee signing and uh Kyle Fuller isn't he still riding the pine? He's still yeah, riding the bench him. Well, and that brings me to the point we're coming up to the trade deadline. And if the Broncos win tomorrow, they're probably going to try to pretend they're going to have a good season and be buyers. As much as I like to have them win, I almost want them to lose so they rebuild this thing properly with the right head coach. Well, they, yeah, they, yeah, you, you should be, if you're a true patriot, patriotic Bronco fan, as you should have been before the season, you should be rooting for losses. It was idiotic to resign, or not resign, but to bring back, pick up the option on Von Miller. That was just stupid. And they got played by Von Miller, by the way. Um, get rid of him if you can. If you can get anything, if you can get anything for Von Miller, 
Get rid of him. Get rid of Kyle Fuller if you can. Get rid of it should be a complete fire sale. Every win they get from here on out costs them draft position and a shot at a quarterback. That's all. They're only hurting themselves. Well, and speaking of quarterback, Teddy's only on a one-year deal. He's not the answer long-term. To keep him around for another year would probably take a fair amount of money, and you'd just be overpaying somebody who's not going to get you there. Do you trade Teddy Bridgewater? I don't know if anybody wants Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater, you know, you, you can limp through the season with him. You probably should bench him, really. You should just put Drew Locke in there, see if he has any hope whatsoever. He probably doesn't because I, I don't think he can play. I don't think he can play dead in a Western, to quote the great Joe Williams. But throw him out there. There might be some scintilla of hope that he could become something. Probably not. You should be playing all your young talent at this point, and that includes Drew Locke. Teddy Bridgewater is nothing. He's not going to be here next year. He's hurt. He's banged up. Get rid of him. All right. My friend, I have to let let you go right now so you can come back and talk sports for how long you on today? Uh, I'm on for two hours till uh, 1 o'clock. All right. That's probably going to be tough on you after being gone all this time. So I'll close this up and let you get started. Sounds good. All right, we're going to wrap up, Terry Wickstone, with those. We kind of crept into dance time a little bit. I like to do that because he's so, you know, he gets so ornery sometimes. I know you're still there. So we're going to follow us on Facebook, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Follow us on uh, YouTube, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. Kyle, my friend, we're going to miss you, your last shift with us. Thank you for keeping this show online. And Karen has always kept things lined up and ready to go. We'll see you. By the way, next week we're on ESPN from 10 to noon uh, because of the Air Force game. Then we'll be back on the fan the week after that. We'll let the Eagles take us to Dan Jacobs' sports on 104.3 The Fan.